0: Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Congressman Roe Khanna. Congressman Khanna represents California's 17th Congressional District, located in the heart of Silicon Valley. He's currently serving his third term in Congress. Congressman Khanna sits on the House Committees on Agriculture, Armed Services, and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. Congressman Khanna is also the Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Prior to serving in Congress, Congressman Khanna taught economics at Stanford University and law at Santa Clara University. He also served in President Barack Obama's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Welcome, Congressman Khanna. Thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
0: Congressman Connor, when I first um, contacted slash accosted you on Twitter about doing this podcast, I think it was based on a tweet that you sent about kids and vaccines and basically doing something that I was personally very grateful for, which is saying to the FDA, can we get a little more clarity here? Can you describe for the listeners exactly? what you're asking for and and where we are on this issue of when the 5 to 11-year-olds will be eligible for COVID vaccines?
1: Well, the the issue is personal for me as I have small uh, kids. uh, And I know it's personal for Katie Porter, who also has children. And we led a letter to the FDA saying you have to give a clear timeline. I mean, we're hearing all different things and speculation about when these vaccines actually will be approved. I don't understand why they didn't start the trials and focus on this earlier. I think they uh, dragged their feet a bit during the summer. Uh, And you have the American Pediatrics Association saying that the trial results, the first trial will be enough and you don't need a second uh, trial. And so the letter asks for clarification if the FDA views it Uh, In the same way, given uh, the explosion of cases with kids, given the fact that many kids, unfortunately, are ending up at hospitals, given the increase of uh, prevalence uh, with the reopening of schools. So the FDA is supposed to brief us next week and parents want answers and parents want this to be uh, approved when it is safe.
0: I'll just note for the listeners uh, that based on when we're recording this next week is basically mid-September. And uh, just this week, President Biden came out sticking on our theme of COVID and vaccines. President Biden came out with what I think is his strongest and most detailed proposal for trying to get this nation back to some new normal where we don't have hospitals, including pediatric wings, filled with patients. And I'm wondering if you could give us your initial reaction to this plan. It includes saying to the Department of Labor uh, that they need to ensure that every company that has more than 100 employees mandates vaccines, including a vaccine mandate for federal workers. I would love to get your impressions on this plan.
1: It's a strong plan. I'm glad the president has done it, uh, and. The fact of the matter is, if you're an employee working for a big company, many of those employees are fearful of what it means to go to the workplace if there are other people who are unvaccinated. And the job of the Department of Labor is to protect the health and safety of workers. Currently, one of the biggest risks to workers is being exposed to the virus, especially if they have unvaccinated kids at home, Uh, and even even if they don't, the chances of breakthrough Diseases. So the president took uh, the right action, bold action. uh, And I do believe that as long as this isn't struck down by the courts, and I don't think it should be, uh, that uh, it will have a dramatic impact in increasing our vaccination rate.
0: Congressman Connor, I had planned actually to say, let's move to the infrastructure bill. But in your answer, I'd like to take a step back and say, how did we get here to a place where we have? incredibly unimaginably effective vaccines with incredibly unimaginably high safety ratings. And we have to get to a place where the president of the United States is not just saying, I suggest this, but mandating it. Do you see some, from your perspective, some causes for how we're not at a place where we have 90% vaccination, where frankly people are scrambling to get an appointment where we look something like the rest of the world where they just can't wait to get these life-saving vaccines?
1: It's unfortunate that it's been politicized. I mean, the counterfactual is if the vaccines had come out when Trump was president, would he then have pushed for people to be vaccinated? I mean, he was so always touting the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine. Uh, instead, you know, the vaccines come out when Joe Biden is president, and you've had basically the Republican Party politicize the issue. And the consequence of that is people are dying and people are more sick. So I think it's very sad that we've politicized an issue of public health. Uh, and, and there are mandates, certainly at schools and in you know, many employment situations, for a lot of vaccinations. of other contexts, this is not some new idea that you're required to be vaccinated to participate in a public activity in the public space. Uh, so uh, the hope is that people will realize, the that the courts at least will realize, that the president is acting within his authority.
0: How much, I know you said that this is politicized, and, and I agree in a way that I in my lifetime have never seen science politicized this way. How much of this do you think is based on disinformation where people are just getting not just bad information but people are lying to them for political purposes. I mean, is this something that you're observing is it or is it a variety of causes? People feel reticent because they're not sure, they're not sure if they can trust the government. It feels like it's new technology. Are there some root causes here that you're also looking at beyond just the, you know, idea that obviously that this has been politicized?
1: I do think there have been systemic disinformation campaigns, obviously on social media, but also uh, on cable news. And that has an impact. The fact that we live in a world where your trust is based on partisan affiliation has an impact. So there are a lot of people who just don't trust any Democrat administration, a Democratic administration or any Democrat and that is that is having an impact. And then conspiracy theories that are more prevalent, it seems, that are in our times than there have been before, uh, is having uh, an impact. But it's it's very it's very sad that on such a major uh, public health crisis, we are having a, a a difficult time getting people to follow the guidelines of, of science.
0: I think. Last question on. COVID, just not because it's not incredibly important, but just based on timing. If I said to you in this interview, you know, I just feel worried about it. Can you help me? I've heard that people had heart attacks. I've heard that um, people got sick. I've heard that not that many people die. I'm not in an age bracket yet where. I think I should be particularly concerned. Is there something that you say to your constituents just on a personal level to try to help them think through these decisions?
1: I say, don't take my word for it. Talk to any doctor who you trust. Talk to any nurse who you trust. Talk to your own doctor, your own nurse, and they will tell you that there have been, as far as I know, Almost no documented cases of deaths in the United States based on people who have taken the vaccination and very, 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 very few cases of people who get sick versus the dangers of not taking the vaccination, where you're statistically much more likely to get hospitalized or uh, to face death than if you were to take the vaccine and they can share all that information with you. But ultimately, I think that information has to come from a person's own doctor or medical providers.
0: Yeah, this is a a trust the experts and trust members of your community moment. And uh, I hope that we can get back to that. Now, I do want to move on to something else you've been talking about, and I'll introduce it very broadly, which is reforms to the tax code and uh, the Stop Cheaters Act. I'm hoping that you can give us some highlights of your proposals in this area, what the problem is and what the solutions are.
1: The problem, Jessica, is that Many people who are extraordinarily wealthy are evading taxes. It's not just that they're avoiding taxes by hiring fancy lawyers and accountants to come up with clever loopholes. They have simply chosen not to pay tax, particularly on business income. When most of us make money, we get a W-2 form. On that W-2 form, it determines how much money you've made and how much tax you owe, and that goes to the federal government. But if you have a business that's making money, that doesn't have to necessarily disclose to the federal government. And people sometimes do not always voluntarily disclose that money. So what the Stop Cheaters Act does is it says, let's require banks to disclose business income to the government so that you can't hide money that you're making through a private business. And let's audit the top 1% uh, in a systematic way, so they're actually paying the taxes that they owe. And the study show, Larry Summers, centrist economist, estimates you could raise $1.2 trillion uh, over 10 years if you just enforced the tax provisions currently on the book.
0: I definitely think it's worth emphasizing, Larry Summers, nobody's liberal economist, to be sure. And I want to move on for a minute to talk about something else dealing with the economy that you've been commenting on a lot, which is where we are in terms of infrastructure funding and infrastructure legislation and where you think we should be going. And I'm hoping you could talk to the listeners. I feel like even listeners who try very hard to stay abreast of what's happening may not be clear on what's been passed, what hasn't, what's still pending. And and where do you think ultimately we wind up at the end of this year, for instance?
1: I believe we will get both the infrastructure and the president's Build Back Better bill passed. The question is what will be in it? Uh, my view is we should pass the full Biden agenda. That means let's build roads and bridges, but let's understand that if we're going to invest in the traditional economy that has a lot of carbon footprint, that we also need to invest in the bold action required to tackle the climate crisis. And that is what the second bill is about. It's about electric vehicle investment. It's about having a clean energy standard for electricity. It's about creating a climate civilian core. Uh, And it's about making the investments in people that they need to succeed in a digital economy, in a 21st century economy. You can't succeed in the workplace if you uh, don't have childcare and you have to have the duty of uh, always being... Uh, with your children and don't have the flexibility of having assistance with that. You can't succeed uh, if you don't have college because you can't afford it or community college or vocational education. Uh, You can't uh, have a successful uh, outcome on healthcare if your dental isn't covered. So these are the types of provisions that are in the build back better agenda. And I expect us to get to consensus on both. I, I don't know what the exact number is going to be, uh, but we will get both bills through.
0: And what happens then in the Senate? Do we know? Do we have a prediction?
1: Well, I think there's, you know, Manchin and Cinema will obviously demand certain cuts. There's a line below which the president won't go. The Progressive Caucus believes the three point five trillion was already the compromise. But I, I don't think that the Manchin and Cinema are gonna be able to push for any deep cuts. They may have symbolic cuts here and there. But ultimately, this is the agenda that Biden ran on and that Biden won on, and he's entitled in the first year of his presidency to have his agenda voted on by Democrats.
0: Congressman Kana, You just I said this in the introduction that uh, your involvement in the Progressive Caucus, and you just mentioned it, and it strikes me that maybe this isn't something we should just list, that I should allow you for a moment to explain what is the Progressive Caucus, why do we need it, why don't we just have a... Democratic
1: Party? I wish we had a Democratic Party that stood for all the progressive ideals, that, that stood for Medicare for All, that stood for free public college, that stood and applauded the president's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and to end endless wars, that stood for a $15 minimum wage, that stood for expanding Medicare benefits, that stood for universal preschool and childcare. But we don't. We have a Democratic Party that Uh, Has many different wings. The Progressive Caucus stands for all of the policies I listed, and there are 93 members of it. So almost half of the Democratic Caucus. Ultimately, the goal would be that most of the Democratic Caucus would support these policies.
0: I think a lot of our listeners probably have somebody in their life who either it's them and they're just more moderate than people who hold those views, or it's a family member or a colleague or a friend. Can you help them out with what you think is a response to the argument of, yes, I agree with all of those things, but it just shouldn't be government mandated. All of those sound like great goals, but let's allow people some more freedom to implement those things. And let's not, you know, what's the typical criticism, kind of tax and spend and regulate people out of their ability to innovate.
1: Well, you don't have freedom if you can't get an education. You don't have freedom if you don't have health care. And no one is saying that you're depriving people of choice. If you give people Medicare, they have the choice of almost every doctor being in network and they will have the freedom to change jobs and they'll have the freedom to have healthy lives. If you pay for people's public college uh, or community college or vocational education, they'll still have the freedom to choose among many different programs, but they'll be able to go to those programs. So I think all of these things are enhancing people's freedoms not curtailing them and the idea that any kind of investment in people's uh, ability to pursue their their calling to pursue their talents is a curtailment of freedom i think misunderstands what it means to be free
0: i think this is such a foundational question and i want to that you've addressed and i want to end by asking you about another foundational question that is in the news um, and ask you for help in terms of how we can address this, particularly in California. Throughout the nation, there are a number of laws that I would categorize as restrictive voting laws, whose goal I would say is not to prevent fraud because I don't think that voting fraud exists in any way that proponents of these laws claim that it does. Um, And I have heard a number of my students and colleagues and friends say, we're in California. We have the kind of the opposite of suppressive voting laws. We have voting laws where we try and actually make it as easy as possible to exercise your right to vote. What do you see in terms of the future of these restrictions? And what can people who are in bluer states do who are motivated to try and ensure that everybody can exercise their right to vote.
1: We need the Voting Rights Act to pass, uh, the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act to pass, and we need SB1 to pass. I mean, the Roberts Court, as you know better than, than me, I imagine you've taught this, uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act and basically gave states the flexibility to do what they want in curtailing people's right to vote. And what our legislation in the House that has passed the House does is say, no, the Congress is going to make it clear that there is still a need for federal oversight to ensure people, that states can't curtail people's right to vote. They can't just throw people off the voting rolls. They can't have less ballot places in areas that are predominantly minority or that are predominantly young.
0: And the only way
1: we're going to get that legislation passed is if you have an exception to the filibuster. So I think this is where we need the president. I, the president uh, you know, has to do what Johnson did or Lincoln did and go to the mansion or cinema and say, what do you need for Arizona? What do you need for Virginia, West Virginia? We need to get you to a yes that voting rights has to be passed by an exception to the filibuster. And I'm willing to sit here with you until we get to a yes.
0: Are you optimistic about that happening?
1: I am optimistic on getting to a yes on infrastructure and I'm optimistic about Build Back Better, the larger plan. But unfortunately, I haven't seen the same tenacity and resolve on voting rights. And I, I, I think we need that, especially because it is going to change the future of our democracy. And it may entrench a minority rule in this country for, for another decade where people have a, where we may have the majority, but a minority is really winning the election's uh, given the disenfranchisement of voters,
0: Congressman Khanna, I'll end the podcast by asking you a question: of How has your life as a public servant, as a member of the Progressive Caucus, changed between pre January twentieth, twenty twenty one, and post January twentieth, twenty twenty one?
1: Well, we can get a lot more things done with President Biden there. And I have uh, a bill with Senator Schumer, which is bipartisan, that will have a hundred billion dollar investment in science and technology that passed the Senate. The president will sign it by the end of the year, the largest increase in science and technology since the Cold War. Uh, I uh, have been chairing the Environment Subcommittee and we're going to have the Exxon CEO, Chevron CEO before my committee committee. Uh, in the fall to talk about climate disinformation. So the president uh, has been able to to change the terms of debate on issues of the role of government in helping improve people's lives, and it's exciting to be part of that. Obviously, what happened on January 6th was uh, a huge blow to the uh, sanctity of American democracy, and as a result, People have become more guarded. The Capitol itself has been fenced in. There is more distance between elected representatives and and the people they represent, including in the People's House of Congress. And that has been unfortunate. And there has been, even post-Trump, a greater polarization to the rhetoric, a greater vitriol between uh, parties, between geographies in this country. Uh, And whatever we can do to figure out how to lower that temperature, how to uh, find our way to uh, working towards common American projects again, I think remains the challenge of our times.
0: Congressman Kana. I know you have very limited time and I appreciate you spending some of it with us.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity.
0: You can find Congressman Ro Khanna on Twitter, both at Rep and at Ro Khanna. That's R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. I'm very grateful for all of the people who've been tweeting me, telling me about their thoughts on the show. Same thing with respect to my Instagram account which is also at Levinson Jessica. The podcast is on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. We've now had a number of members of Congress come on the show. We're very grateful for that and to be able to share their thoughts on their agendas and what it's like to be a public servant. And we wish everybody a great day.